So I'll tell you this. My wife thinks I have walking pneumonia at this point. So I told her I'd make a doctor's appointment a week from Monday to see if I still got it. If I do, then I'll go, all right, to the doctor. Come to Element, say hi to me, I'll shake your hand, Gift, keep on giving. Just take it home with you, too. <laughs> what did you get in church? <laughs> I got sick. It's the greatest thing in the world. All right, uh, two things before we begin. Uh, we do these things during the summer called Pillman Theology, where we, we show a movie, we talk about it, and how the gospel can kind of relate to all that. So in December, the movie, this movie called The Hobbit's coming out. <gasps> Intake a breath. Somebody's excited. Awesome. All right, so what, what we're thinking about doing is renting a theater for the movie. <gasps> Again. Okay, okay. So, but the only problem is we don't get a break on the seats. Uh, they, they basically charge us full price for the seats. So it's, it's 11 bucks a ticket if we do it. And if we do, we're going to see if they won't show the 20 beforehand and that it'll be like on a, like the opening Sunday. We'll tell you like 5 or 6 o'clock at night. We'll do a little bit of film and theology beforehand. We'll give some like prizes away. We're looking maybe at giving away like the, the Blu-ray box set of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, stuff like things like that. I'm going now. <laughs> I will draw the name. I'll be like, Aaron, take it home. Anyway, but, so... So I'm asking, uh, we're, we're trying to see, because they do uh, theaters between two and 300 people. And so we're trying to get a good guesstimate on how many tic- tickets to buy out of theater for. So who would be interested in going to that? All right. What's wrong with the rest of you? <laughs> Sounds good to me. We'll probably, we'll, we'll want to buy one and then we'll let you know. We're just going to have, uh, we'll let you know what theater it is, what time it is, and we'll just have the tickets in the back. And you just grab your ticket and then come to the showing that day. Uh, we'll try and get you guys to come maybe half an hour early so we can do all the things that we want to do with the movie and prizes and have a whole lot of fun. Maybe you can, I don't know, if you got hairy feet, just don't wear shoes so you look like a hobbit. If you don't, put hair on them. I don't know. <laughs> There's a joke in there somewhere, I think. Okay. Um, the, the second thing I want to tell you about is I want you to put this on your calendars. We do this uh, last week, the... Christy, who does our children, she was at a meeting with a bunch of other children's ministers, and they were talking about what they do for Halloween. And they're all talking about their, oh, what do you do for your harvest festival, your harvest festival? Your harvest. Okay, Halloween, we don't do anything here, and I'll tell you why. We want you, if you've got kids, you take your kids out trick-or-treating. You go house to house to house because there's no other day like this. You knock on your neighbor's door, they will open it and smile and give you something. All right? <laughs> It's a great holiday to get to know your neighbors. If you don't have kids, stay home, get a big bowl of candy. When they open your, open your door, be nice to them, get to know your neighbors. It's a great holiday to learn to live missionally. And so it's, we, that's what we want you guys to do on Halloween. Don't, don't run off to some harvest festival somewhere. Stay home or take your kids out and do something where you get to know those people in your neighborhood around you. It's a great holiday to do that. That's why God gave it to us. But what we do... And since, since we don't do that, we do a thing called pumpkin killing, all right? Pumpkin killing is, uh, we have, this element has a pumpkin patch. We're growing all of our own pumpkins. Probably have to buy some extras because they're just not doing that well this year. But we'll, we'll have a bunch of pumpkins for everybody to be there. And you come out on, I think it's October 28th, last Sunday of the month. You come out with your family. You grab a pumpkin. You carve your pumpkin. You do all your stuff you want with that. And then, if you are so inclined, about two hours after that, about 3 o'clock, we will go out to a piece of land. And we have a cannon, and we will launch these pumpkins. It is awesome. This year, this year, the barrel is twice as long as last year. Because the guy who built it decided, I only got to here before that pumpkin was coming out. I want to get 
all of the air in there before it takes off. It is phenomenal. If you, I mean, I, I cannot even explain how awesome it is. So, last Sunday of the month. Okay. <laughs> Enough said. You should come. It is really amazing. I mean, who was there? Who was there last year? Right? It's, you're speechless, right? It's like, boom, and you're all. <sighs> That's how awesome it is. All right, stand there reading God's word. We'll get going here. <clears throat> it says, Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23. It says, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us to be a people who do understand our hearts in light of you, that our hearts would beat in time with yours, and we would keep that with all due vigilance, so that you would be fully honored by what we do with our lives. Amen. Have a seat. All right, this is... Genesis week 36, that's nine months into the book of Genesis. Okay, so if you have a Bible, you can open in Genesis chapter 22. There are 50 chapters, by the way, so just let you know how this is going. Uh, so far in Genesis 1 through 11, what we've seen is creation and curse. And then chapter 12, you get to a thing called covenant. The demarcation line in this is a guy named Abraham. If you've been with us any number of weeks talking about Abraham, you may be like me and you judge a little bit about Abraham's faith. And you think, you know, why was this guy even called a man of faith? I mean, I'll tell you, I would not pimp out my wife twice. I, you, know, I, you know, I wouldn't do that. If God came and spoke to me, I don't think I'd laugh in his face. But then also at 80 years old, I highly doubt I would circumcise myself. And I highly doubt I would do what Abraham does today, because today you really see why he's called a man of faith. You know, all these chapters you see his ups and his downs and his ups and his downs. Yet chapter 22, it has been some years since what we talked about last week. Uh, depending on the commentator, it could be between 15 and 30. A lot of modern commentators think between 13 and 15 years. Josephus, some early commentators believe it's more like 30. So at this point, Isaac, Abraham's son, is somewhere between 15 and 30 years old. And what we look at today is the pinnacle of Abraham's faith and the perfect representation of Jesus coming to sacrifice for his people, but it involves an awful lot of pain and testing. Now I'll tell you, Scripture is clear that God never tempts us, but he does allow us to be tested and sometimes tests us himself. It's for our good. Testing actually has its role. So this is the way the story begins in Genesis 22, verse 1. It says, after these things, God tested Abraham. Now, the writer says to you and I, as the reader, as you go through this, Isaac is not really in any danger in what's about to happen. God does not require a human sacrifice. One of the reasons a lot of people think this is also here is to show that Abraham was to be different than all the cultures around him, that he did not offer human sacrifices. But in the story, what Abraham goes through right now, that's perspective he does not have yet. And so sometimes God allows for our testing. You've got to understand, Satan will come and he will tempt and he will test you in an attempt to destroy your faith. But God, when he tests us, it's always in an effort to build our faith. In the book of James, chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, it says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and steadfastness has its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, you ever have a really hard test? Ever have a hard, anybody? Hard test? I'm not talking like the DMV. Oh, I had to parallel park. Oh, dear God, what am I going to do? Not, not that, right? But, but like a really hard test. I, I read this story about this guy. He was a sophomore in college. Goes in for what's called his ornithology. That's study of birds, his final exam. He's been studying like a couple weeks for this. And he gets into the class, and it's not a test booklet. There's just pictures on the board. And it's not even pictures of birds. It's of their feet. And he's like, what's this? And the teacher said, you have to identify all the birds by their feet. And the guy said, this is impossible. It can't be done. And the 
teacher says, well, it's got to be done. That's your, that's your final. And the kid's like, I'm not going to do this. I'm walking out. And the teacher says, well, I'll fail you if you walk out. And he says, fine, fail me. The teacher says, what's your name? So he pulls off his shoes and his socks, lifts up his legs, and he goes, you tell me. <laughs> it's all the humor you get this morning. It's a really serious message, by the way. So there you go. Uh, when you, when you look at the scriptures in regard to our lives, a test is an experience through which a person's true values, commitments, and beliefs are revealed. That's what a test is. And in the Old Testament, testing is actually very interesting because it's only used in reference of the people of God. It's never used in a reference to heathen nations, and it's only applied to people of faith, never to the ungodly. And so testing is reserved for people in relationship with God. Even though it's painful, it's an act of love. And this is why James says, And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing so that's how it starts genesis 22 god tested abraham and god's voice cries out says god tested abraham and said to him abraham and he said here i am and abraham responds because he knows god's voice at this point when god speaks he listens to what he says god's voice has called him it has saved him but it's always led him into places of crazy trust every time abraham hears this voice it's something new and unexpected but god always promises difficult things but he's always been coming through. Now, the very first time that Abraham heard God's voice, it's back in Genesis chapter 12, and the voice says, leave your homeland and everything you know, and Abraham actually did. I mean, Abraham's living in the land with his family. He's 65 years old, so he's getting up there in age, about time to retire and not really do a whole lot. His life's winding down, and that's when God shows up. I mean, it's a great day when God shows up, right? Oh, hey, God, how wonderful. It's like Santa comes and decides to stay for the cookies at the same time and eat them with you. It'd be like, oh, how wonderful. But what does God do when he actually shows up and talks? He says, leave your homeland, leave the people you know, and go to the place I will show you. Where is that place? Just I'll show you. And Abraham says, okay, and he goes. And the next thing God's voice says to Abraham is that I will be in covenant with you, Abraham, with ties that can never be broken. Abraham says, great. God says, I'm going to give you a sign for this. Great. Noah got a rainbow. What do I get? Circumcision. Did I hear you right? You know, I mean, seriously, what's, what's up with that, right? And yet he obeys. Thirteen chapters in the book of Genesis, this guy Abraham dominates the scene with God constantly calling him into deeper and more turbulent waters. And Abraham moves from situation to situation where his faith is tested, his life is on the line, his heart is near breaking. But God was always true to his promises to Abraham that though everything may seem lost, God would never leave him. Then we looked at a couple weeks ago, God finally comes and says, you know, you're going to have the promised son that I promised you you would have. This is when he and Sarah, he and his wife, their combined ages were 190 years old. So what did they do? They laugh at God. Ha <laughs> ha, right. And then it happens. He'd actually have the boy. And now this voice comes again. And as far as we know, it's the last time Abraham ever hears the voice of God in the book of Genesis. And it tells him to give up that promise of that son. This is why Abraham is seen as a pillar of faith. He says, here I am. I'm not going to run. What do you want? And he said, God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now, our response would be, what the, what? You want me to do what? Sacrifice my son? No way. That's what the Canaanites do. That's what Americans do. They murder their children. I, this is not something that I am going to do. There's, I'm not going to do that. This is wrong. You know, we would respond like that. But Abraham responds and trusts God. Do you know, as you get further into the scriptures, like in the book of Exodus, God calls every firstborn child his. And what you realize here is God is calling Abraham to give him the boy, to trust him. Abraham loves God. He loves the boy. But which one does he love more? And you know this because in, the, in this request in the book of Genesis, it is preceded in Hebrew by this participle that actually it's, a, it's an entreaty. It's not a command. It's like, would you do this? 
And Abraham does. His response, verse 3, So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men and his son Isaac. He doesn't fight. He doesn't argue. When Sodom and Gomorrah, he was arguing with God about Sodom, but here he just trusts and obeys God's divine charge. Now, if you remember, Isaac's name means what? Uh, somebody laughs. There you go. Laughter. Perfect. Yeah, laughter. Good. <laughs> there, you can, whatever you want. All right. It means laughter. So when God promises them the boy, the first thing they do is, is they laugh. I mean, they probably wouldn't go buy green bananas at the store. They're that old. It's like, I don't know if they'll be around by the time they ripen up, so I won't get green ones, you know? You know, and then, and then they get the sun and they laugh for joy. They're like the only people buying, buying pampers and depends at the same time at the, at the grocery store. But now this comes around and Abraham isn't laughing anymore because he's got to endure confusion. He's losing his dream. He's got this promise of a new community for mankind. Imagine if you had a church plant, say like Element, and you're going 24 years out. And finally, after 24 years, there's like one convert. One person believes in Jesus. You're like, what a great day. This, we're going to start really moving forward now. we got one person who believes in Jesus. Let's, let's go. And then God shows up and says, yeah, that one guy, take him out to the parking lot and put him down. You'd be like... He wouldn't do that, by the way, okay? So don't be like, I, wanna, I don't know if I want to follow Jesus in that church. No, no, it, he wouldn't really say that. But, but that, that's the kind of idea. Can you let go of what you love the most? Abraham lives for this with three days. Now, we know it turns out all right because you can read the whole story there, but he doesn't know that. In life, we only proceed one page at a time. Every journey has a beginning, a middle, and an end, and no one's ever allowed to see the end. I think it's summed up like this. Faith can be difficult. Do you agree? Yes, very much so. And so when you come to the scriptures, we embrace the scriptures as this wild, uncensored, passionate account of people experiencing the living God. Sometimes they doubt the one true God. And sometimes they wrestle with the one true God. Sometimes they argue with the one true God. Sometimes they get angry with the one true God. Sometimes they reconcile with. Sometimes they love and worship. Sometimes they follow the one who gave them everything. And scripture is nothing that we can tame. We can't tone it down. But there is always a purpose. In Abraham's mind, Isaac is now his hope for a future. And Abraham walks this road of darkness, not understanding what God is doing. Gerhard von Rod says this, Abraham walks onto the road of God-forsakenness where God seems to contradict himself. Now, I don't know if you've ever felt this, like, I, I don't know where God is. I feel completely alone. I have a friend right now, he's, he's overseas, and he sent me this email last week, and he said, I feel really alone. I, and aren't I supposed to feel the presence of God all the time? Aren't I supposed to? And I said, no, it doesn't always work like that. God draws us in different ways to help us to learn to grow up. And so, because we, we were talking about, you know, The Hobbit and stuff, because it's, it's opening and things, I, I said, it'd be like if you went to see The Hobbit, and at the end of it, you were mad because Batman never showed up. Right? Because Batman's not the point of the movie. You know, what we talked about the last three weeks is that God is the author and finisher of the story. And when we make ourselves the center of the story, we lose focus of what the center is really supposed to be. And so God is the center of the story. And that means sometimes when we walk in faith, it's walking in darkness. But we refuse to quit. We keep moving forward. John Ortberg writes this. He says, The character of faith that allows us to be transformed by suffering and darkness is not doubt-free uncertainty. Rather, it is tenacious obedience. Because we all have doubts. Doubts can actually be a good thing. If someone says, I saw Elvis flipping burgers at McDonald's, you can doubt that. Because even if he was still around, he probably wouldn't be flipping. They'd probably be eating them. If you're, never, whatever. Okay. You know, uh, uh, an earthquake's going to throw California into the ocean. Eh, maybe. I don't know. It might, it'd be kind of interesting to happen. I had a UFO baby. 
You can doubt that. Okay, all day long, doubt that. I mean, this is why we don't buy everything we see on infomercials late at night on TV. But doubt also is not sometimes good. It can hinder our praying. It can trouble us when we see suffering that we just don't understand. This is why Abraham is a paragon of faith. In the Old Testament, he struggles with doubt. It lies about his wife. He sleeps with his wife's servant. He laughs at God's promises. But he does one thing. Every time God speaks, he goes. He listens. He obeys. So here, Abraham simply obeying God. Having faith does not mean never having doubts or questions, but it means remaining obedient when God does call. So this is what it says. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, so he's gone 50 miles now in, in three days, and three days has huge overtones in the scripture, in case you don't know that. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Isaac's with him, thinks he's on a trip with his dad, this will be great, not realizing that, oh, they're going to go sacrifice me over here. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey, I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Now, even in these words, Abraham is expressing faith. We're going to come back. We'll be back. We're going to come back to you. And what happens next is really important because we'll come back to it. Verse 6, And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. Now this is the second person in this chapter who has now spoken to Abraham. And this time it's the voice of his son. And I'm assuming Abraham's like, Man, don't ask me any questions. Isaac, don't ask me any questions. Please don't ask me. He says, My father. And he said, Here I am. Same words he uses that when God calls him. Here I am, my son. So Isaac notices a missing sacrifice. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Smart kid. You know, what do you say? Where's the, where's the offering? We're walking up there. Well, it's you. You know, I mean, what, what do you say to you? Maybe if you're Abraham, you're a little bitter about this. And you have to understand that this is the most important conversation Abraham and his son are ever going to have. Do you know why we know that? Because it's the only conversation recorded in all of the scriptures between Abraham and his son Isaac. And this means it is very important. And these are the words that Abraham says to Isaac. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. This is important. So they went, both of them together. Now they walk separated by a secret. Abraham knows what he's called to do. Isaac doesn't know. They're both in a sense alone. And one of the things you have to understand is when you're going through trials and hardship and trouble, a lot of times you feel totally alone. Like, I'm being tested. Why do I? No one understands what I feel like. No one understands what I'm going through. You feel completely alone. And so you have to stop here just for a moment as we go through this because you don't want the happy ending. You've got to walk with this. You have to see that sometimes suffering produces a larger purpose, endurance, the transformation of who we are. C.S. Lewis said this, pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And so like Abraham at this point, you may have doubt and pain and wondering what's going on, but I will tell you, Like I told my friend overseas, you have not reached the end of the story. You do not know the ending yet. Abraham's story is one for people who wonder why God at times seems so remote and so disinterested. And what it also means to be faithful to him in the midst of it. This is why Moses moves the story really slow. He wants you to linger with the story. Here's a recent survey that involved hundreds of people, and they asked them to identify the most formative factors of their spiritual growth. Overwhelmingly, number one, they all said suffering and pain. 
Suffering is usually overlooked in our, in our spiritual growth. None of us actually goes out and tries to arrange for it to happen, unless you're really freaky, right? But none of us tries to arrange it. Life just somehow arranges it for us. This is why the writer of Hebrews, when he goes back and talks about a crowd of witnesses who had a lot of faith, the one witness who gets the most time is Abraham because of how he ran the race. I have a higher view of Abraham than I ever used to. You know, go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him as a burnt offering. I mean, that's a tough thing to do. And it's a hard road because for Abraham it means giving up all that he loved the most. But even more, Isaac is supposed to be the fulfillment of this promise that God made to him. Verse 9, it says, When they came into the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Question, does Isaac go willingly to this? Yes. What 13, 13 to 30-year-old guy couldn't take out a 100-year-old man or at least run away from him, right? Wait up, get back here, you know? What, who couldn't get away from that guy? And so what you see is that Isaac goes willingly and Abraham at this point is going to raise his hand to destroy everything and yet he still believes. I mean, not perfectly. He's never, he's never done that. He has faith riddled with doubt. But Abraham did not run because he knew the voice of God that called him. So he trusted God for everything in his life. Even though God seemed distant he still trusts him in the midst of this. He knew this is the one I could trust. He hopes in God. Even from a human perspective, everything seems lost. This is why I told you a couple of weeks ago, Soren Kierkegaard called Abraham a knight of the absurd. That Abraham gives up everything and he's hopeful all the way to the very end, even when hope seems absurd. Abraham doesn't have perfect faith. He's just hanging on. And in the last couple of weeks, this is really good. A lot of you have read farther in the story and you've emailed me questions about this. This is really good. But a lot of times people, when they ask questions about this, they say, you know, how could Abraham even think about doing this? And we get really high and mighty when we, when we look at Abraham in this story. I'll tell you, as Americans, we don't have any leg to stand on to be high and mighty. We abort one-third of all conceptions in this country. We kill our children, too. It's just on the inside so we don't see it. So we have no leg to stand on with this. So in the story, Abraham, when he's about to sacrifice Isaac, I imagine Abraham goes and he raises his knife. I think he locks his shoulder. He's crying because he loves his son so much. He wants this done in one blow so he doesn't have to stab him again and again and again. I think he now thinks about walking home alone, having to tell Sarah what just happened. And then again, he hears the voice of God. And Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. Now, when you see, again, the angel of the Lord in the scriptures and not an angel of the Lord, it typically refers to Jesus in the scriptures, theophany, showing up in the Old Testament. So Jesus shows up and says, don't lay a hand on the boy. Abraham is an instant. He's giving back his laughter and his joy. But you've got to see that suffering alone does not produce perseverance. It's perseverance that is endured through faith that does. And he says, for I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. This is, again, how we know it's God saying these words. Verse 13, And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. God will provide, you know, the lamb for the burnt offering. So he doesn't get the lamb, he gets a ram. This foreshadows the lamb that would come and die for all of us that wasn't here yet. And this is what you have to understand in this section of scripture. This is one of the most important doctrines you will ever understand. If you forget everything else in the scriptures and you remember one thing out of the entirety of the scriptures, you remember this doctrine right here. The doctrine of substitutionary atonement. That we all 
deserve to die because of our sins in front of a holy and righteous God. And yet Jesus dies in our place. The perfect Lamb of God. A transaction occurs where I get Jesus' righteousness and He takes on all of my sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. You have to get this because this is a message of Jesus' life from His baptism to His crucifixion. Either you pay for your sins forever or Jesus pays it for you. This is the great message of the cross, is that God chose not to stand apart from his people's suffering, which we inflicted upon ourselves. He is not unmoved by the pain of his people. When Jesus goes to the cross, he carries his cross on his back. The Romans make him do this. He carries his own wood to the place of sacrifice, just like Isaac. When he is bound, the scripture tells you, he did not cry out, just like Isaac. But when the knife was raised, no one held back that knife. And Jesus was pierced for our sins and our transgressions. Why was that knife not held back? Because there is no other sacrifice for sin. This time the son died, the heavenly father grieved. That's the message of the cross. The cross in the world today is one of the most recognized symbols, sometimes for good, sometimes for evil. It is a far cry from a piece of jewelry we wear around our necks or hang on our homes on the wall. The early church would never put crosses in their church because they believed it was too grisly a reminder, too humiliating a remembrance of Jesus for them. The Jewish Roman historian Josephus called death on a cross despicable. Crucifixion was always reserved for the worst punishment of crimes. Nazis actually still crucified people at Dukau. In Cambodia, captured soldiers were crucified. Today in the Sudan, they're still crucifying people. Crucifixion was so horrendous that we had to make up a new word to describe it. We made up the word excruciating. It means from the cross. The Persians invented it. Romans perfected it. And it was done publicly. People were not crucified all high like you see in the pictures. Oh, look at Jesus all the way up there. It was eye level. So you could see a man die right in front of you. And again, it's not in a barrack somewhere. It's in a public place. And so it would be like down in front of like the Walmart or down at the Santa Barbara Bowl. You could all go down and you could all watch. People would throw rocks and stones and spit and hurl things at you during it. It's a slow suffocating death where you where you'd slowly you couldn't breathe. You have to poise up to breathe. And the Romans wanted to make that last longer. So what they would do is they put a little seat underneath the buttocks of people. So you'd have a place to sit so your agony could last even longer. Some men, because they wanted to die quicker, what they would do is they'd slide off that seat. And I'm not trying to be vulgar or gross to you, but what Romans started to do is they would nail a man's penis to the cross so he couldn't slide off that seat. That is how excruciating this was. Romans 15.3, Paul says, For I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ died. By itself, that is not good news. But the theological understanding of it is. Paul uses the word for to move you forward in this, to the fact of its implication for us. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That's why it's good news. It's the only hope we have ever had. It's the only hope Abraham ever had. And this is what we call atonement, what was made for at the cross of Christ. Today, you go to a lot of churches, there's young, hip, cool, I call them stupid, pastors who have this doctrine under attack. They shy away from the cross because it's offensive. Yes, it is offensive. You are so bad that God sent his sinless son to die for you, so he takes on your sin and gives you his righteousness. And we are so offended by this because we actually think we're not so bad. Oh, I'm not really that bad. You know, I'm, not, I'm, I'm okay. No, you are that bad. This is why Jesus died. 
And this is why it's the only good news and the only hope we've ever had. You have to grasp the severity of the doctrine of atonement and what it meant for God to declare us clean in his eyes. Hebrews 9.22, in fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. So Jesus dies in our place as the perfect lamb. And it's a language of love and restoration and reconciliation. And if you don't understand that, you're never going to understand sin, salvation, and hope. Verse 14, this is why Abraham, so Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. This is the word Jehovah Jireh. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it shall be provided. This is the spot where one day Solomon builds his temple and sacrifices take place. That fall foreshadowed Jesus Christ coming and dying for his people. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn. Again, this is how you know it's God. You know, you have no other hope, so help you me. Okay? By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they rose and went together to Beersheba and Abraham lived at Beersheba. Galatians 3.16 rounds this out for you. It says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, And to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Again, the point of the story is Jesus, the Messiah. He will die as a substitute for sinners. He will fulfill all of God's promises, and he will be king, son, and servant. That's who he is. And I am sure Abraham and Isaac both breathe a heavy sigh of relief. But you look closely at the whole scenario. What's the point? The point is Jesus. And they didn't even get to see that. For for centuries, commentators have argued back and forth about what's the point of sending Abraham through this when ultimately we know on the other side of Christ the whole point was pointing to Jesus and, and what he would do. But what's the whole reason for Abraham and Isaac to go through it? Some, some say, well, it's God testing Abraham so he would know Abraham's heart. But that's not true because Scripture constantly tells you that God knows what's in the heart of a man. He doesn't need to trust Abraham to know what's in there. So other people say, well, God's testing Abraham so Abraham would know how deep his faith actually was. And that may be partially true. I mean, this really may have solidified some things in Abraham's heart at this point. And other people, including myself, believe that God demanded the sacrifice to show Isaac what true faith really was. Because now what God has said is Abraham or Isaac is the child of this promise. Isaac knows his father loves him. He knows his father loves God. But he needed to see faith exercised in order to make it all click. Because up to this point in the scriptures, God is the God of Abraham. After this, he becomes the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac. And eventually with Isaac's son Jacob, he becomes known to the Hebrews for all future generations as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. See, Isaac from this time forward just doesn't worship with his father. He worships like his father. Isaac learns to trust God by seeing that even when his father was confronted with crisis and suffering and pain and fear and a really hard test, he still trusted God in the midst of it. But most importantly, this event has ultimately showed God's heart because in the end, what father is really tested? Our heavenly father who showed his people what he would do to save us from our own sin that you and I could just never ever get out of. And that's the idea. You may have trouble and pain in your life right now. And you've got to hear me on this. You cannot do it alone, ever. The reason you trust God is he understands what it means to walk this road. He walked that road with the sun up to that cross. He knows what it means. But you also have to understand that three days later, Christ rises from the dead. That resurrection comes for all of us. The question for us becomes, how are we going to finish the race? How are we going to trust God? When things that we don't understand come up, will we continue to trust him? 
First Peter 3.18 says, For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. First Peter 2.24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. There is nothing more important than the death and the life of Jesus, the cross, and atonement. Without Jesus, there is no eternal life. There is no forgiveness of sins. There is no relationship with a good, a true, and a holy God. This is why we cling to and understand and trust the reason for his death and ultimately his life. Mark Driscoll wrote this, It's not about the subjectivity of our feelings, but the objectivity of the cross that the children of God were saved, that their sins were made to be atoned for. See, it is about Jesus, propitiation for us, atonement, because God really is that good. And we are invited to be a people who live our lives every single day in remembrance of that. That's why we are a humble people. There's nothing in us that makes God want or have to do this for us. He does it simply because he is that good. And he loves us more than we can ever imagine. And now our duty in this is we're supposed to love him back. I mean, that's what Abraham gets to in his life. God says, go, go. Why? Because I love you more than anything, period. And that's where we're supposed to be at. This is one of the reasons why we remind you of bringing to communion every week. Because it's that idea of the, you break that cracker like Christ's body is broken for us. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice as a remembrance of the event of Christ's death and ultimate resurrection. That he is a God who saved us. Because he made this choice all the way back in Genesis 22. I think from the foundation of the world of exactly what he was going to do. And he does it. He follows through and he is trustworthy. The band's going to come up. They'll do a couple songs, and as they do, uh, we invite you to take communion. Uh, there'll be some uh, deacons and elders in the back to pray with you. Uh, if you would like, maybe you've never understood this whole idea of propitiation and atonement and you know, what that really means, and it's just humbling. You just like to pray with somebody, somebody about it because it's humbling. They love to pray with you. Um, and again, I, if you have never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, today is the best day in the world to do it because it's today, and it's right now. They would love to pray with you about that. I mean, our God saved us from ourselves. Uh, there's offering boxes on the sidewall in the back. We give because God gave so much to us. Giving then is simply part of our worship. Uh, and there's also some food and stuff in the back. And you guys are invited to grab something to eat, get to know some other people. What you see throughout the scriptures after God starts revealing himself to his family, farther on what you get to is that God actually, when people worship him, it's always like in groups. And we as a people come together, we worship corporately together. And this is why we, we try to get you guys connected. Because our worship to God is never just meant to be individual. It's meant to be corporate like this where we come together and we worship God together as a people. Because our God is that good. And as you walk out of these walls, we love those around us because God has called us to love those around us. And even when we don't think they're worthy because we haven't been worthy. But our God made us a people who are worthy through the death and the resurrection of his son. And he is that good. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that we would be a people who understand the grace and the goodness of who you are. What you have done to save us. What you have done to call us home. And that we, in humbleness would trust you in all the places of our lives, especially when we step into places that we don't understand or we feel like we're all alone, we feel like you've actually left us alone, that we would understand that you haven't left us alone, that you are and have been walking with us every step of the way. Father, we thank you for loving us more than we can ever imagine. And we ask that we would have a glimpse of that grace and that we would trust you and that we would honor you and realize that you are 
more than enough for all of our needs and all of our hopes and all of our dreams because it is your grace and your son that makes our lives and our stories make any sense. So today, remind us of the humbleness that we as a people should live within because of your atonement. And if anybody in this room is going through a test or a trial and they, and they just feel all alone, I ask that they would understand that you as our God has never left us alone. And you have walked with us every step of the way. And you are and always have been calling us home. Have us live lives that honor you because of the trust that we have in you. And we ask this in your son's great and good name. Amen.